Hello everyone and welcome to the second ever episode of Behind the Yellow Line, a true crime podcast. My name's LJ and I'm going to be your host. you have not already, please don't forget to subscribe to this channel. It really does help me out so that I can find my audience and make sure that all of you loyal subscribers can get to the content that you so truly want to see and hear. Also, if you haven't already, I do ask that you give this video a like as well as give it a comment down below to suggest any future videos that you would like to see from me. If you have a story, if you have a true crime case that you're familiar with, or maybe you know somebody personally that's been affected by true crime, please, please comment down below so that I can look into these cases and cover them in a future episode. So with that all out of the way, I do wanna give two disclaimers. The first one is that I am not an expert. So I don't have a degree in criminology. I don't have a background in this area. This is all just for fun. This is a hobby of mine and something I'm just truly passionate about and interested in. Additionally, I don't know any of these people personally in this story. I am just enthused and excited to share this information. I do a lot of research on these cases. I do find as much information as I can. However, I'm not going to claim that I know how to pronounce everything correctly. So I I do apologize if I mispronounce a name, a city, a state, it's gonna happen and I do apologize for that. Lastly, I want to give a trigger warning. Warning, this podcast may include graphic depictions of rape, assault, and other unsavory activity. You have been warned to continue listening at your own risk. Trigger warning is in effect. Viewer discretion is advised. I do this trigger warning because I know that this information can sometimes trigger others and I definitely don't want to cause you any pain by listening to this. So if you or anyone around you may not feel comfortable listening to this, please consider checking out the next video. So with all of that out of the way, let's get started on the case of Elizabeth Smart. In the middle of the night, Around 2 a.m. on June 5th, 2002, several hours after midnight, Elizabeth arose to a noise in her bedroom. Sharing a bedroom with her sister Mary Catherine, she heard the sound of footsteps and a voice. Then, the next moment, she felt a cold metal against her neck. Above her, a man tells her, I have a knife to your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. So, let's get into who Elizabeth Smart is a little bit. At this time, Elizabeth Smart is 32 years old, so she did survive. I did want to just put that out there right away, is that this is not a murder case. She did not get murdered. She is alive and well at this time. However, what she went through was definitely something I wouldn't wish against my worst enemy. She was born to her parents, Edward and Lois Smart, on November 3rd, 1987. Her father, Edward, better known as Ed, was a real estate and a mortgage broker and she was raised as a devout Mormon. She grew up with her family. Uh, she had three older brothers. Uh, it looked like, based on some depictions that I've seen, that she also had a younger brother. So that was a little confusing, but I did read an article that said older brothers. I'm fairly certain, though, one of them is younger, actually, to be honest. She does have a younger sister, though, as well. 
Her younger sister, named Mary Catherine, shared a bedroom with her. So they would sleep together in the same room together every single night. Smart was described by her friends as kind, smart, <laughs> uh, shy, and obedient. She was extremely passionate about music. She was actually a really gifted musician. She started playing the harp at the age of five, and she was extremely talented. She would practice for hours upon hours, and she was actually considered like one of the really good musicians of the area. She would get invited all over at school events, around the city, to play the local weddings, funerals, as a harpist. Another thing she was known for was being a diligent student. Right before this story takes place, she was actually being honored at her school to win some medals and some awards at her school for her physical fitness as well as her school smarts. At the age of 14, Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her home. She lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. She would describe herself as a happy-go-lucky 14-year-old. She wasn't boy crazy. Heck, she wasn't even interested in boys. She hadn't really thought about them yet at that point. She wasn't into makeup. She just was interested in hanging out on a trampoline, you know, having fun with her friends. So what happened to Elizabeth Smart? Well, let's get into it. I want to first start out with the abduction story and then I'm going to fill in some further details about this case and certain things that came up once they make sense chronologically for the story. So this story is a little weird in that there is a preface to the story but it doesn't make sense until I explain it later. So just hold on to that. On June 4th, 2002, it was coincidentally her grandfather's funeral. Her grandfather, you know, was not doing well, um, and he passed away, and so on June 4th, they had a funeral t of his to attend to in the morning. And then later in that day, Elizabeth was actually going to be honored at her school, and she was being honored at her school for her efforts in physical fitness and some of her academics. She was even invited by her principal to play the harp. So Lois, her mom, was making dinner as you do, and she accidentally burned the potatoes that night. And I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been around like stinky, reeking, burnt food, ooh, you gotta open that window, which is exactly what she did. Just to like, you know, let some fresh air in. And so, you know, the day goes on, they go to the school, she gets to play her harp. She was even invited to play the harp by her principal. And that night, you know, in her bright red pajama pants and pajama shirt, she's, she's uh, in bed reading Ella Enchanted with her little sister, Mary Catherine. And this was normal, you know, Mary Catherine knew how to read at this point. She was about nine at this point, but she preferred when Elizabeth would read to her. She said that it made it easier for her to picture the story in her head as she was read to. So Elizabeth continued to read to her until she fell asleep that night. So in the middle of the night, around two in the morning, on June 5th, 2002, Elizabeth arose to a noise in her bed. She heard the sound of footsteps and a voice. Then in that next moment, she felt a cold metal against her neck. Above her, a man tells her, I have a knife to your neck, don't make a sound, get up and come with me. At this point, Elizabeth is petrified. She thinks her family might have already been killed. So at this point, she's gonna just follow his direction. As she was walking through her house, she's screaming in her head for her mom to hear her, her dad to wake up, for anybody to save her. But alas, she was stolen from her house and forced to climb up a mountain in the middle of the night by her abductor. So flashback to the bedroom 
is Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine recalls from that night saying, I stayed in bed. I was so scared. I just couldn't do anything. I was shocked. I was petrified. I didn't know what to do. Someone has come into my bedroom and taken my sister. So being the younger sister, not knowing really what to do in this instance, she cowers in her bed till four in the morning. So about two more hours. At which point she finally gets up enough courage to run to her mom and dad and tell them Elizabeth was taken. So Mary Catherine is very young at this time when this is all going on. Um, and she's about nine years old. So she does take a mental picture of what's going on, but it's not that clear, you know? She's scared, she's hiding, she's trying not to get taken herself. She tries to be able to identify this man, but you know, keep in mind at this time she was only nine years old. So throughout the story, I'm gonna go flashing back between the family and Elizabeth. Because she's alive, we have both accounts. So the best way I could make this make sense was kind of doing some back and forth. So going back to Elizabeth's story, while she is being pulled at knife point towards the mountain, a police car actually drove past them as they're hiding in the foresty part. So Elizabeth recalls that her kidnapper stated something about if this is God's work, then let us go forward. And she remembers, because keep in mind she was of Mormon belief, so she's raised very religiously. She remembers thinking how crazy it was that her kidnapper was talking to God about letting him steal her. He also, the kidnapper, started threatening her that if she moved or if she made a sound, you know, he was going to kill her. So obviously she doesn't do anything because she doesn't want to die. <laughs> but the patrol car drove right past them. So onward they went. Flashback to Mary Catherine and her parents. Well, they look downstairs. They turn on all the lights, you know, they're like calling her name. They're looking in the bedroom. They go downstairs and they see the screen window that the mother had left open from when the potatoes, you know, were burned. And they see a giant slice in the window screen. So they call 911 at 401. There was a lot of issues with the crime scene. They're in a panic. The parents, you know, don't know what to do. Their child is missing. It's four in the morning. So they start awakening the neighborhood, the neighbors, calling their family, calling whoever they can, who, who could possibly know what happened to their kids. And so the house, is unfortunately not sealed as a crime scene until three hours after 401. This caused tons of contamination. The crime scene was just ruined. The whole neighborhood, their friends, their family, everyone was there. So they started mobilizing and they decided to start searching. Tom Smart, which was Elizabeth Smart's uncle worked for a local newspaper and he was working with the family to get nationwide attention. He was kind of like the pinnacle to get this on every major news site. So now I'm going to go through a timeline. On June 6th, 2002, over 700 volunteers came together to join in the search efforts for Elizabeth. On June 7th, 2002, Ed Smart at this point, you know, he's been questioned by the police. He's been on every news channel imaginable. He's trying to get the word out about his daughter. He is going through it. He hasn't slept. He hasn't eaten. He passes out due to stress, fatigue, um, and he was hospitalized for 
exhaustion and from collapsing. This day they also set a family, the family set up a reward for anyone who could locate their little girl. This was crazy to me that it started off as a $10,000 reward, but thanks to the community efforts, it was eventually boosted to a $250,000 reward to find her. On June 8th, Elizabeth's story appears on America's Most Wanted. I wasn't able to locate any clips of this, but I remember watching America's Most Wanted when I was a kid. This was a huge TV show. My parents would watch this all the time and I would always like sneak into the room when they were watching it because I don't think they wanted me to see it, obviously. But I just remember seeing this kind of a show. There were like all those kind of shows on back in the day and I can't even imagine like if her story made that like a couple days after like the whole nation knew what was going on. So then going over to Elizabeth's side of the story. On June 5th, the same day that she's kidnapped, you know, they've been walking up the hill, the sun starts coming up, and as the sun starts to rise, Elizabeth can get a better, you know, visual of her kidnapper. And so she starts to recognize her captor. His name is Emmanuel. And if you don't know who Emmanuel is, well, that's great because I haven't brought him up yet. This story originally takes place back in 2001. This all started due to a simple kindness. Elizabeth, her mom, and her siblings were walking downtown where they saw a beggar on the street. He looked clean cut, he had a nice looking appearance, and you know, this evoked a feeling of sorriness for the family, for Elizabeth. The beggar, he asked for some work, he asked for some money, and Elizabeth's mom dug around in her purse and found a $5 bill, and he, she, she put it in his direction. And at the same time, uh, the beggar asks, once again, Elizabeth's mom, if, he, if she has any work for him. Well, Elizabeth, their house was pretty nice, actually. I saw a couple, like a documentary or so on it, and there was definitely work to be done on the house since it was such a big, you know, nice house. And so I guess they had been working on, like, you know, redoing certain things. They had to redo the roof. They had to do a couple other, you know, work on the house as any homeowner knows, you know, there's always work to do in a house. And so they got together with Emmanuel, they gave him the phone number and was like, yeah, call us and we'll find some work for you. And Emmanuel actually works on the roof for Ed Smart and with him. And this is actually just so crazy to me is that at that time when Elizabeth's mom gave him the money, it was just the moment he chose her. He describes her as the one. We would also later find out that his real name is Brandon David Mitchell. So Mitchell is Elizabeth's kidnapper. Now that she's recognized who her captor is, she's kind of like, why isn't he just killing me? And he basically never intended to kill her, is what she later finds out. She finds out that his intention was much more sinister than that. So they continue to walk up this hill and eventually they make their way to a campsite. At this campsite, they see a woman, Wanda Barzi. And Wanda Barzi is Mitchell's wife. So Barzi leads Elizabeth into a tent and gives her a tan robe. Keep in mind, she was wearing a bright red pajama outfit. And so this is kind of like a target. You know, she's gonna be seen if she keeps wearing this. So she gets 
a tan robe. She's been told by Barzi to take off her clothes. She goes and takes off her clothes, but she leaves her underwear on and Barzi says, nope, nope, you gotta take that off too. And then Barzi leaves the tent just for Emmanuel to come back into the tent where he, while Elizabeth is kind of out of it, you know, not really even realizing what's happening, he starts performing this ceremony on her and with her and it's a marriage ceremony. From there, grabs her and begins to rape her. I can't even imagine like how scary that must be as a 14 year old to have to go through something as crazy as that. That just breaks my heart for her. But you know, she tried to pull back, but it's no use. She was a 14 year old and this is a grown ass man. Eventually she falls asleep and she awakes later in the day and she sees there's been a chain that's attached to her ankle. And from this point on, she just is like constantly like their captor. She was basically raped constantly. This was just what he did to her. And if she asked like, why are you doing this to me? He said, well, that's what a wife and man do. They consummate their marriage. Ugh, which just gives me goosebumps thinking about. Like I literally am covered in goosebumps. I don't know about you guys, but ugh. So on June 8th, Elizabeth hears her name being called while she's at the campsite. And she thought at this moment she's gonna be rescued, but Brian or Emmanuel or Mitchell, whatever you wanna call him, says that if she called out back to them, she would be killed and she, that they would kill whoever was trying to come save her. So she stayed put thinking that maybe they'd still come, maybe they'd still find her. But unfortunately this was the only time she ever heard the search party. There would be times where Elizabeth wouldn't be able to eat for long periods of time. And that was because, you know, food is scarce. They're living in a campsite, they're beggars. And so food is scarce. And so Mitchell would often force her to drink multiple glasses of wine or liquor prior to raping her. Eventually, as he had her under captivity long enough, they began to visit Salt Lake City together. Mitchell would take her and Barzi down and they would have facial coverings um, that would only show the slits of their eyes, but like from here and here up and here down, they'd be covered in these tan robes, which kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. I know for sure, I mean, most people have seen, you know, that sort of garment worn, um, but it's usually of like a darker, you know, a, maybe a blue, a, maybe a black, maybe a darker gray, but I've personally never seen one of tan of that style. So I think that was pretty odd that no one ever said anything to anyone about it. Smart says on her rape that she was raped on a daily basis. Sometimes it would be multiple times per day and it was frequently while she was kept tethered to the tree. He would force her to consume vast quantities of alcohol and drugs, and he often would not feed her for days. She would be on the, the brink of starvation, and all the while, Mitchell would just attempt to indoctrinate Smart into his weird religious reliefs and convince her that he was a prophet, which, not. <laughs> Elizabeth describes her kidnapping in three words, terror, boredom, and rape. Her life and her family's life were threatened on a constant basis. Another notable day in this timeline is July 24th. This day was a strange day because Mitchell, it kind of starts a little bit before with 
Elizabeth talking to Mitchell and typically whenever she would talk to him he would like yell at her or like you know threaten her life or whatever but this time was different they were talking about a neighborhood that Mitchell wanted to go down to and Elizabeth says oh yeah my, my cousin lives like down the block on this street well, her naiveness, she didn't know any better, but she unwittingly creates his next target. On July 24th, 2002, Mitchell allegedly attempts to kidnap Smart's cousin, Olivia Wright. She was, however, unsuccessfully captured. She was not kidnapped. Brian, like his previous crime, cut the window screen. But on this attempt, when he went to push in the screen, I guess they had like picture frames or like pictures against the window frame. <laughs> Not really sure how that works, but that's what the story says, is that there were picture frames against the windowsill. And so when he pushed on the window screen, they pushed the frames down on the ground. That makes a loud clatter, especially in the middle of the night. And so that woke up someone in the house. The issue arose is that there was no eyewitnesses, so nobody had any glimpse of what this intruder looked like. There were no finger fingerprints left at the scene, and there was no evidence at the scene. So this was honestly chalked up by the police as just a copycat. It's not him, but it was him. So another notable time is August. In August, they went down to the Utah library, and there was a call about this odd traveling trio with, you know, the, the, the get garb and get up and not seeming to like blend in this area. They basically were just like, this seems odd and out of, out of our area, can you go take a look? And so a detective comes up to them. They're sitting at the table at the library and Barzy grabs onto Elizabeth's thigh. Wow, I have a stutter. <laughs> and so Barzy grabbed onto Elizabeth's thigh and don't say anything. Like grabbing onto her, like don't, don't do anything. And the officer keeps asking, you know, hey Mitchell, like to the, to whatever his nickname of the day was, I wanna see this girl's face. And he's like, no, this is my wife, this is my kid. And they can't, you know, show their face for religious beliefs. And he's like, I got a call that said that this is a missing girl, like I need to see her face. He's like, no, no, you don't understand, like the only people that will ever see her face is her future husband and me, her father. Um, and nobody else can, can see her face, like the only thing that will be shown is her eyes, and this is our religious belief. And they keep going back and forth and back and forth, but eventually the officer backs off. And that's because in Utah where they live, it's a very religious area. As I mentioned, you know, Elizabeth was raised Mormon and her she has very strong Mormon beliefs. And so within that Mormon area, you're either very Mormon or you're very gay in that area is what I picked up on through a couple documentaries I saw about this. And so yeah, they had a they had a let it go eventually because the line from the documentary was if you're a cop and you don't respect the religious beliefs of this area you're not going to be a cop for much longer so he had to do what he had to do and he had to let him go so the reason they were at the utah library is because it's august now and the weather is about to change you know the seasons are coming 
and they want to move to California. They want to move to California for the winter because it's nicer weather over there for being a beggar. <laughs> Eventually, Mitchell is able to panhandle enough from his ministry <laughs> to get three tickets to California for October 7th. So the next morning they make it to Lakeside, California and Elizabeth calls the area they stayed in as a swamp area. She began drinking more and more often once they moved to California because she kind of gave up hope at this point, you know? She thought her last chance to be saved was that officer at the library and she thought once they left Utah, you know, there's no chance she would ever find her way back home. So she started kind of giving up and succumbing to the alcohol that was being given to her, the drugs that were given to her, and just not really pushing off anymore, just kind of like letting him do what he wanted to her. It's just, it breaks my heart. It really does. Like, I can't imagine being in such a, like, place that, like, that's happening to you. Ugh. So Elizabeth said about the time that it would usually be a day or two without food. She says that she was constantly hungry and she would always be thinking about the next time she would be able to eat or drink. She says what she loved the most was when he would leave <laughs> because he would be gone for at least 12 hours and so she knew she would have 12 hours between the next time she was getting raped. So we're going to go back to the parents' side now. So on October 12th, 2002, Mary Catherine eventually states that she believed the kidnapper may have been a man that her dad had hired to work on the house in November 2001, and his name was Emmanuel. They decided not to go public without the fact that they were looking for him because they off the cops on the investigation did not want him to go underground and hide, but Eventually, they just couldn't keep this news. They needed to go public, the family decided. In December of 2002, America's Most Wanted had a second segment about her case, and this time they bring up a manual. So, two months later, in February 3rd, 2003, the Smart family releases a police sketch of the man named Emmanuel. And then two weeks after the fact of this sketch being released, one of Brian David Mitchell's people step forward to say that Emmanuel is actually Mitchell, who had become a homeless preacher. So before I get into Elizabeth's eventual getting saved <laughs> and found and all of the stuff that happened to Emmanuel, I just want to cover two other suspects that the police had had. Um, and one was Brett Michael Edmonds, who was identified as someone wanted for questioning. He was actually identified by a milkman who had tipped off officers, stating that he saw a suspicious-looking vehicle two days before the kidnapping. Police eventually deny him as a suspect, and he was arrested but not charged and deemed not a suspect. So he was kind of a suspect, not really. <laughs> but the other person who was actually a top suspect was named Richard Albert Ricci and he was charged for burglary and theft for stolen items from the Smarts home and a different home within like a vicinity of their home. The family felt that he must have been responsible for the abduction because if he's willing to steal from us, why wouldn't he steal our daughter too? He had an alibi though, and his wife was his alibi saying that he was home all night in the bed next to her. He even passed a polygraph test and there was no evidence against him. Later on, Mary Catherine also pointed at the TV when he was on television and said that she didn't think it was him. And in August of 2002, while, you know, the investigation is going on for him, 
Richard dies in a hospital after suffering a brain hemorrhage in prison. Safe to say at that point they were pretty upset they had no more leads. Thankfully, like I said in October, Mary Catherine was able to finally recognize the abductor. On March 12th, 2003, yes, 2003, nine months after Elizabeth was kidnapped, she is found alive, walking down the street with Mitchell and Barzi, about five to 18, it was conflicting information, but five to 18 miles from her house. So they do eventually go back to Utah once the weather comes back to a good state. I didn't really find out when specifically they came back, but I believe it was either February or sometime in March. But they were five, five to 18 miles away from her house. Mitchell and his partner Wanda Barzi were arrested and it is learned that Smart had been taken to a campsite about four miles northeast of the family's home for a few months before traveling to southern Utah or Southern California and then back to Utah. Now that Barzi and Mitchell have been caught, it's time for a conviction, right? Wrong. On March 18th, 2003, Mitchell and Barzi are charged with six felony counts, including aggravated burglary, kidnapping, sexual assault, and two charges for trying allegedly to break into the home of Elizabeth Smart's cousin. This will be the beginning of a long and tiring battle. On January 9th, 2004, Barzi is found incompetent to stand trial. She was sent to Utah State Hospital, which is a mental hospital located in Provo, Utah. On September 2nd, 2004, Mitchell pleads not guilty to all six charges. Then on February 16th, 2005, Mitchell is removed from the courtroom for singing during his competency hearing. July 26th, 2005, a judge ruled that Mitchell is mentally incompetent to stay on trial and he is also sentenced to Utah State Hospital. So this pissed me off so much when I first heard about this. I was just like, are you kidding? Like, you're really gonna tell me that these people are not competent when they ha- Ugh, it just made- it grinded my gears, but the family wasn't willing to give up that easy. So eventually they're able to resubmit for a competency hearing, and on December 18th, 2005, Mitchell is again found unfit to stand trial due to screaming outbursts in the courtroom. So at this point, I feel like he just is learning how to work the system, to better himself and so that he doesn't go to prison. Like, that's just what it seemed like to me. I was getting frustrated reading this. The federal grand jury on March 7th, 2008, indict Mitchell and Barzi with one count of unlawful transportation of a minor across state lines and one count of interstate kidnapping. So new charges are brought against them. On October 24th, 2008, Mitchell is removed from the courtroom once again for beginning to sing hymns. The U.S. Magistrate Judge Samuel Alba enters into a not guilty plea on behalf of Mitchell. On September 28, 2009, Elizabeth Smart is finally allowed to tell her story because the U.S. court judge ruled that Smart is allowed to testify against Mitchell. She does so on October 1st, 2009, where she testifies to his competency. Who better than the person who's been his victim and was forced to be around him for nine months would know better than if he's competent or not to stand trial and to be held accountable for his own actions. So on November 
17th, 2009, Barzi finally pleads guilty to kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor. So it took her what, like six years, seven years to be held responsible? That just ugh, blew my mind. It made me so mad. But um, she agrees to cooperate in state and federal cases against Mitchell. So that was a win. I was very happy about that. There's a double win in that, you know, she's now pleading guilty and she's going to help with getting Mitchell in trouble. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, she only gets 15 years in prison. She's sentenced on May 21st, 2010 to 15 years in prison. Then on November 1st, 2010, Mitchell's trial finally begins. Between November 8th and 10th, Elizabeth Smart gets to testify against Mitchell and describe in detail her nine months of captivity. She gets to talk about the rape, about the kidnapping, and about all the gruesome details in between. I can't even imagine being a judge on that case. Like, oh. On December 10th, 2010, eight years after the kidnapping, juries find Mitchell guilty of kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor with intent to engage in sexual activity. The judge, Judge Kimball, sentences him to life in prison. So we finally have a win. He was sentenced to life. I am very happy about that. That was very satisfying to hear because I think they both deserved life in prison. I can't believe she only got 15. But wait, it gets worse because on September 18th, 2018, Barzi at age 72 was released from Utah State Prison five years early. On October 7th, 2013, Elizabeth Smart published her memoir called My Story. So she does have a book out about her story. There are a bunch of documentaries also about her story. You know, she is an advocate. She is a writer. She is a philanthropist. She's constantly posting about missing children also right now. So she is really doing a great job. I really recommend if you haven't ever heard of Elizabeth Smart to look into her a little bit because she's very inspiring, especially if you or somebody you know has ever been a victim of assault. I think she is a great role model and I think you should all go give her, you know, a, a good like on her Facebook page or whatever have you. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about you guys, but that was a long one. That was a crazy story, and I just, <laughs> I need to go lay down after all of that. But um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. This was my second ever episode of my podcast, Behind the Yellow Line, a true crime podcast. I really hope you enjoyed listening to all of that. Uh, if you like it, please give this a like. Please subscribe if you have not yet. Comment down below with a future case you'd like to see. And until then, I will see you guys behind the yellow line. Goodbye.